Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. This is our gratitude season where we're showcasing and celebrating and talking with and about our team members. Hey, Kurt, welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you on. Uh, It's been really nice this season to refocus on our team. That's something that we've been doing um, across the board, not just with the podcast. It's been a rough couple of years with COVID. And so we are making a determined focus to be more forward-looking, less reactive to global emergencies and refocus on our team. And so it's really nice that we're able to spend some time with different individuals uh, and kind of chat with them in a way that's not a client conversation or trying to organize trucks getting out the door or <laughs> trying to, you know, figure out what happened with the shovels. <laughs> Who knows what happened to the shovels? No one will ever know what happened with the shovels. <laughs> so yeah, thanks so much for, for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. And And we're in the same office, so we get to chat pretty frequently, which is nice, but um, it's often, you know, in passing. So it's nice to sit down and be a bit focused as well. I wonder if you could kind of remind me of (laughs) starting with us and even like your origin story before that, because, you know, we love origin stories. And I will say that you have a unique origin story, in my opinion. Like many archaeologists, I imagine, I always wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. But throughout my early scholastic time, I really couldn't care less about school. I did really well in the... Oh, don't believe it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I did really well in the uh, subjects that I cared a lot about. History, English, that was about it. And the rest were embarrassing. And it was largely due to a lack of interest and effort. So when it came time to venture forth into the world... I opted for the family business, which was uh, joining the military and not going into post-secondary or archaeology. A large reason is because I I didn't even think of archaeology as as a thing that you could do as a job. Like I knew it was a thing that people did. I never knew it was a real job. I knew it was something that was on TV. It was something that I read about in books, but it did not at all seem like a career path that was remotely within my realm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was uh, it was something very smart people did. And I didn't consider myself to be among those people. So I, I joined the military and uh, I joined the uh, the Armored Reserve out of uh, Kelowna, BC, the British Columbia Dragoons. And I was happy doing that for several years, did that for about eight years. Then I had a family thought, you know, driving tanks and stuff was a young man's game. So I transferred <laughs> into the Air Force. A, and, a, so, uh, a story as old as time. Tanks yeah. are a young man's game. It's it's hard on the body, that's for sure. Um, but it, it taught me how to dig holes, which proved useful later. Was it only square holes you were allowed to dig in the military, five meters apart from each other? <laughs> there were 
hmm, think of a slightly shallow grave <laughs> and, and and there's your your average like fire team trench <laughs> so i mean they were square ish i did that for i was turning wrenches on the uh the f-18s up in cold lake um for for nine years and during this entire time archaeology was still very much on my radar i was reading all the books i could get my hand on anytime there was a news article i would just devour it but it was still another one of those things where like wow look at all those really interesting people i wish i could do that oh well so it came time to uh you know my uh, good friend dave brimacombe was opening up a distillery on uh, vancouver island he gave me a call and uh he said you know hey kurt i need you on the team what'll it take and i'd known him from the military and i had just gotten back from kuwait was back for a few months and yeah, I said, it'll take a phone call. I'll see you in six months. So I handed him my walking papers. Six months later, I was showing up in uh, Courtney, moving in, helped get this uh, distillery up and running. And then uh, Veterans Affairs Canada got a hold of me, said, like, listen, you have an education and training benefit. We'd love to kind of help you transition into the civilian world through some education opportunities. Um, you got to use it or you lose it. So I used it. And my very first instructor ever was a ancient history course with yourself. Me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's when I learned, like, I, I can be a student in post-secondary. That was, that was exciting. And that archaeology was a thing that people did. And I was talking to an archaeologist. And it really changed the whole course of my life. Because I was going to school because I felt I should use this opportunity still somewhat adrift but um after just a few conversations with you all these like childhood dreams started to crystallize into this focus and i was like this is something i could do so i changed my courses found as many uh, anthropology and archaeology courses as i could which were almost entirely taught by you at uh, <laughs> north island college it's, it's been working out very well <laughs> i uh, transferred to vancouver island university where i'm going to school now and a month later you gave me a call saying hey why don't you throw in a resume and then june 1st of 2021 i showed up yeah. through that door and uh <laughs> was immediately put to work cleaning artifacts so it was like i, I <laughs> couldn't ask true. for a cooler introduction that is i think quite a unique origin story what's interesting is our topic for today so we're talking about public outreach in general and it's interesting when you talk about the optics of something like the military or the optics of even something like alcohol production um and as well when you talk about archaeology they all have very distinct public images very different and in different ways they're quite curated and so I wonder you know generally speaking what is the importance of public outreach or or public branding on kind of these topics generally before we kind of dive into archaeology specifically I think for optics and the, and the, the public image that, that people put out there and just visibility period um, is is huge for the attraction recruitment uh, retention of, of all these different industries there's some things that can be kind of glorified being a distiller is a lot of cleaning and a lot of watching things that are doing the distilling so it's it's not very a, a glamorous job when you're when you're doing it 
But um, without question, everybody who walks through that door, they see all this shiny equipment. It looks like a giant space flute. Or still, it's a it's a twenty five plate column, and it's it's copper and stainless steel. It it looks like something out of a steampunk sci fi mystery novel. It's 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 great. Public image. It's it's been rebranded entirely. I'm sure it could look like something else, and yet it looks like a steampunk prop. Yeah. And and it's especially when it's working, it's all bubbling and stuff like that. And and people are just fascinated, but they want to know like who made it, where it was made. They want to know what you, what all this stuff is doing. And then you get to tell them about Stephen Cage, the designer, and you get to talk about how alcohol is fractioned through heat transfer. And you can get into really complex chemistry and biology, describing distilling that people didn't know that they were interested in until they're standing right in front of it. Military has a different problem where they already have an image that right. better or worse is, is is kind of that image that they're, they're, they've been pasted with. For much of the 80s and 90s, it was the, the Canadian peacekeeper that was kind of very nice. You didn't have to spend a lot of money on peacekeeping because all you're doing is standing between two people who want to hurt each other. But after... Afghanistan is kind of in this place where people don't want to be war, war fighters. The image of the peacekeeper is no longer really prevalent in the, uh, in the minds of people and very serious, important issues that the military is now going through regarding human rights. And they're struggling with a lot of things, attrition, aging equipment, and being the hot potato between different governments. So their recruiting efforts have to take into account a lot of different things. And that's why you've seen a lot of different policy changes where when I went into the military, you didn't smoke weed. You couldn't wear a beard if you were male. You you couldn't have long hair. You couldn't dye your hair. Now, all those things are, are different because they're realizing that they have to appeal to a different, completely different demographic than was even, oh my God, 24 years ago. <laughs> 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 you old Kurt. <laughs> so old. So I, I think that's like how how optics and, and image really kind of impact how people perceive what it is that you, what that you're doing. And as far as archaeology goes, that whole package is very much still, I believe, in the realm of the ivory tower. Like when people think about archaeology, they're not thinking about all this really interesting stuff that is happening in their backyard literally in some people's cases because they want to put in a, a deck or a pool or, or whatever there's so much interesting things that we can learn from archaeology that's happening in the pacific northwest in, in british columbia on vancouver island that um, people just have no idea about because nobody tells them about it mm -hmm. unless it's like a huge groundbreaking thing which they, just learning that somebody was living in your backyard a thousand years ago i mean that, that that's super interesting to me and when you see like that really popular netflix thing that happened uh late last year stop it where don't even say it, it was <laughs> it was extremely popular which to me shows that there was a, a desire for this kind of information now instead of you know if you're into alliterations why not have a Netflix series called Indigenous Ingenuity or something where you go to these exact same sites and show the real archaeology? And I think that would be 
just as popular, if not more popular, because you're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. You're not trying to baffle them with like pseudo archaeological nonsense. You're you're showing like these are this is the evidence we use to make these decisions, and you don't really see that a lot. And uh, I think that's a shame. And so so that's like at the top of like when you have dollars, you can do stuff like that. But down here at the in the, the mom and pop CRM level, there's there's podcasts, for example, is good uh, community outreach, communicating with First Nations around us, getting them involved and finding ways to incorporate their knowledge into the message. And you just kind of break down those barriers of if I could be an archaeologist, anybody can be an archaeologist. And I think there's a lot of people who would really love to be an archaeologist that aren't because they had that mindset that I do that, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's cerebral academic thing where like, there's only so many years of archeology span working at schools. There's only so many schools like this, finding all these different reasons why you shouldn't become an archeologist where knowing that these opportunities exist could change the whole landscape of, of archeology span and who's doing archeology. span I have a lot of questions for you based upon what you just said. <laughs> All right. So um, if we kind of back up to what you were saying about the military, it's interesting because you were talking about the military has this image. It's it's firmly ensconced. It's historical um, and it's been inherited, right? And so it's being adapted in the present day, but there's elements that have been inherited, relics of past way of doing things and relics of past images. And I think that there is a parallel with archeology span in terms of branding. We've inherited a certain type of archeology span that has relics within it. I get that that's a pun. And believe me, I'm as delighted as anyone that that pun made it in there. But that's also not, not what I'm getting hung up on. Um, it, you know, it has this past way of doing things. We have the image of grave robbers. We have the image of partage archeologists coming in from foreign lands and then, you know, scooping everything out and bringing it back to their home university in a faraway place and, and things like that. And so I think, interestingly, there's a parallel of like a reckoning with our historical image and our inherited image and how we have to rewind that a little bit. Um, and so it's almost like there's more work required for certain disciplines um, that aren't seen as inherently good. I, I like I don't know that people would say the military is inherently good. And I don't know that people would say archaeology is inherently good. I think they're both mechanisms that can be used for good, but I don't think they're just automatically seen like like when you if I think of a nurse, for example, I think, oh, that's an inherently good profession. But at the root of it, they're there to help people. Or if I think of a teacher, that's an inherently good profession. And so I think there's, um, we're at a bit of a social deficit in a couple different fields. And I think that archaeology is one of them. Um, and so we're not even at like ground zero. We're in a bit of a hole. Oh my God, the puns that we've dug ourselves into. And we have to like kind of climb back up just to neutrality. I think is what our field is trying to do right now. Um, and I think public outreach is a big part of that. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to make a couple of points as well. So you're referencing like people think of archaeology as being in the ivory tower. And I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit 
Um, because maybe not everyone knows kind of that concept of an ivory tower and how it relates to archaeology. I think you've said some elements of it, but I wonder if we could like firm that up a little bit. I understand it as like a lot of people who have a lot of information and they kind of hold it and then they talk amongst themselves and there's a uh, exclusivity about it that unless you're part of that group, you'll just not only not be able to take part in the discussion, but you won't even have access to the information so that you can make any meaningful contribution. And and that's kind of how I understand the, the ivory tower. It's very much in the kind of academic sphere that this would be taking place in, where like instead of practical real world effects and what this means to to archaeologists or to First Nations or to you know historical archaeology or, or marine archaeology or how this affects the, the public. It's so insular that there's no way for people to know what's going on. And so they just make their own assumptions about what's happening for, for better or worse. I think in, in recent years, that has, may, and maybe that's the recent years is me finally getting access to the ivory tower. I don't know. But like in recent years, I feel that the these walls of the ivory tower are starting to be dismantled. But that could also just be because I'm finding people to follow on social media that are like super down to earth and super eager to share their insights and their discoveries and how it relates to the real world. But it, it took me 40 years to get to that point where correlation and causation kind of questions about this whole thing. But yeah, is it, is it because I'm now being allowed to access that or I've always been allowed to access that? And only now I'm finding the tools to do that. Yeah, I think the idea of being allowed to access is pretty interesting. When I'm hearing you talk about the ivory tower, what's coming to mind to me, and I agree with many of the things you're saying, and I would add to it. So what's coming to mind to me is, you know, in archaeology in BC in particular, there's been this uh, two camps. There's been the academic archaeology, and then there's been the CRM or cultural resource management archaeology that we work in as consultants. And they haven't always overlapped, and they've had kind of their own micro images, like within the overall image of an archaeologist. But they but they mirror each other in a lot of ways. So what you were saying about the ivory tower side. What I would call that on the CRM side is archaeology for archaeologists. We just we write reports for other archaeologists to read. We hardly publish. There's much more publishing on the academic side than there is on the CRM side, which is obviously shameful because most of the archaeology, the vast majority of archaeology is done on the CRM side. And the reports that we do write are highly technical, very prescriptive, not easy to understand at all. Not easy to write. Not easy to write, not easy to learn to write. They're all template driven. And so I think in terms of when you said being allowed to access or now you're able to enter that, there are a bunch of gates that are kind of built in. And I, and if you don't mind me pointing out, as a white man, you should have the key to just about everywhere. And you find it also tricky to even enter elements of that world even though like you've got the keys to the city that's an excellent point like i got everything going for me and i still find it difficult to do these things i can't imagine how intergenerational trauma or misogyny or racism or any any of these things are going to be affecting other people coming into this field and, and the perceptions of this field because i get i still find it 
mind-boggling that we still have to differentiate you know, feminist archaeology and gender archaeology and children archaeology. Like it's it's all archaeology. Just incorporate all of these different concepts into your paradigm and and move forward. Like it, it doesn't have to be kind of segmented. It is like I understand when you're going to focus in certain areas because you you want to make that point and see how it adds to the the overall picture. But um, if you're not in- incorporating these ideas into archaeology, like just digging a hole and get in there and, and see what's in there. Like if, if you're not already thinking about the landscape, the people, the foodways, the uh, gender relations or division of labor, if if there was any, like then you're not really doing good archaeology. I want to also consider, you know, we're talking about these, you know, nested roles of the archaeologist. Once you get through that first gate of, you know, you're able to access the world of archaeology, there's all of these kind of nested roles within, right? Being a field archaeologist, writing reports, accessing uh, heritage objects, you know, things like that. Is that is that where public outreach should also be nested? Or does public outreach, does it have to be done by archaeologists? Is it going to be yet another role by archaeologists that only serves archaeologists? Or is there a way to like re-envision the role of public outreach where it isn't basically a continuation of the circle jerk that is currently archaeology? I can't believe I just called my profession a circle jerk, but I'm going with it. <laughs> I think there is a lot of opportunity in, in public outreach, in public engagement, to to change that image of colonialism and and grave robbing, to change that image. There, there's an article I was reading a couple of weeks ago about uh, a, a CRM firm had gotten funding to incorporate tribal education incorporated into the budget. So part of the whole CRM project was to get interested people and they were all uh, they were all youths um there's two age groups one was seven to ten i think and the other one was mid-teens that um they're in there they're they're being taught strategically they were being taught you know laws of superposition and artifact recognition and cleaning and excavation like all, all these different tools that archaeologists use to learn about the past they were doing and to to try to reinvigorate that love of their own heritage and and showing how they can participate in telling their own story and i think that's a thing that that we as archaeologists can do and and with first nations and with settler communities as well because we're we're all living here we all have history on this place some people have a much deeper history but that doesn't necessarily discount the history of the settlers um and that's a whole like political and legal uh thing in itself but if if you don't know that these opportunities exist if you don't know that history is there you can't tell it and you can't get people excited about it and so they don't care it does nothing there's a report that gets written filed away at the archaeology branch has never seen by anybody until somebody else needs to dig somewhere nearby. And I think that's a shame because like you were saying, the vast majority of archaeology is done by CRM archaeologists. But where does all that information go? And how do we find it if we need it? And how do we tell the bigger story if we don't know where it is and how to find it? And who owns that information? 
like it's, it's all these different uh, kind of problems within the system compounded with just a, a lack of awareness that um, people are interested, but they might not know where to start looking. So let's do a hypothetical. Let's pretend you're talking to the owner of a company. <laughs> it's very real. Uh, let's let's go through that scenario that you're talking to the owner of a BC archaeology firm. You know, you're relatively new to the discipline, which has a ton of advantages in that you're coming up in like a modern contemporary social setting, which is very exciting. You've got fresh eyes, you've got enthusiasm, which which isn't always replicated to the same level by folks have been doing it a long time. You can get very jaded in this field very quickly. And so there's a real opportunity with talking to earlier career archeologists who are looking into this topic. And so what in an, in, in an applied sense, what does an increased public outreach program look like in a CRM firm? <laughs> so, uh, if if money was no object, which it, which it always is, it, it would it would incorporate all the all these different things like uh, giving your um, giving employees time to to like paid time to write reports that can be published, open access even. Um, uh, you know, of course have to discuss things with you know clients and first nations to see what information is allowed to be published but that's all part of the process anyways but doing these uh, educational outreach programs where you get people actively involved with the excavation or shovel testing or, or, or whatever is is going on even surveying going to uh, schools and like trade shows uh, to set up a booth and let people know that this is a real thing that you can do. We live in a world where money does mean something and it's not always abundant and there's always different pressures and all these things are going to take that money away and you have to compete for contracts and there's a whole bunch of different things that go into the the ability and the capacity to to do these things no matter how much you may want to do them. And so in a so because we operate within a client pay model, as you're saying those things, my brain goes to how do we work that um, into our business plan in terms of, you know, does client education ultimately facilitate public outreach, which then facilitates client business because the public is more on board to understand why these things are happening. And then the client sees the value in that communication to the public. So they would be willing to pay up front for things like publishing and so on. Um, and so that's what I'm hearing as well as like how to fit that into a business model. Um, because we know that these apparently unconnected things like public outreach and project facilitation, they actually do go hand in hand from a client perspective and from a business perspective. That's not ultimately why we would do it. We would do it because it's the right thing to do. But the reality is there has to be a way to finance it. Um, and so it has to have like a value add, which I know is a horrible, gross way of talking about it, but it needs to be rooted in those aspects. So what do you think then um, increase public outreach would do how would it improve the discipline you're talking about the the historical conception of archaeology very rooted in colonialism very rooted in the abuse of indigenous populations it can help bring the the general consciousness out of the past and show them what's 
what's being done today, how we're collaborating with First Nations communities, how we're not forgetting the past, but taking that past, seeing all the mistakes that were made and trying to rejig the, the profession so that those mistakes aren't made anymore to dispel myths about what archaeology is as it's connected to what it was. As people are, are coming through the education system, considering being an archaeologist, they're not turned off by the past. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to associate myself with that because that's gross and I couldn't blame them, but that's not really what it is anymore. It's the new world of, of archaeology as, as we're incorporating all these different uh, progressive ideas and incorporating oral histories and the perspectives of First Nations. It's no longer, it's no longer people s- s- sitting in the White Tower discussing things. It's or the Ivory Tower discussing things. It's, it's also very white. It's fine. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I think that would be the, the, the main thing. And then once people aren't so kind of off put by the idea of of archaeology's past, it just opens up doors to to what what it can be. It's unfortunate that it's at the, the smaller CRM company level that these things are being discussed. Like I don't know what's happening at the large archaeology firms, but I can't see like if they if they've already got a good thing going, why would they change it? Why would they spend more money to do the same job and do more work whereas at, at at the level of a small crm company like this these are important things that are trying to be incorporated into the the function and it kind of has to start at that grassroots level where the impact is most felt financially before it convinces the uh the, the big firms to feel the sea change and get on board Yeah. I mean, the good thing is, um, as a small company, we're definitely more agile. And I find the larger companies not necessarily as agile, but do have really good people working at them who are also concerned. And they kind of have their work cut out for them because it's trying to like turn an aircraft carrier as opposed to a dinghy. Like I can turn a dinghy on my own, but turning an aircraft carrier is going to take a bunch of people pulling together. Um, and so I think that that's an issue as well. And the other, you know, the other amazing thing that we all have here in BC is these communities that we're talking about, these people that we're studying from thousands and thousands of years, their descendants are still here. And that's not the case everywhere in the world. So we can actually work with communities and ask them, you know, what they think public outreach looks like. What does it not look like? Um, which is pretty exciting because uh, that's a resource that, you know, with permission, we can access. Um, and, you know, get some really clear roadmaps for what that would look like. Um, I also want to say, like, you're not just talking a big talk. You're also studying this at school, right? Like, so at VIU, you're exploring this as a topic. And I wonder if you could kind of speak to us a little bit about that topic, you know, how you're approaching it, what you're hoping is going to come out of it. And then, you know, that's that's where we'll, we'll close off the conversation. Okay. Yeah. So uh, VIU is... is very conscious of the fact that they're in unceded territory. Just a few days ago, one of the instructors was saying that the the exposure to First Nations um, culture and just just people at VIU is is probably considerably more than than you would get at most other universities in the world, which I hadn't really considered until. I was looking around. So there's there's totem poles. There's a uh, a community lodge over there. We had um, 
uh, an elder come in and, and talk to us during a class, not only are they saying that they, you know, the, the land acknowledgements, which are which are important, but they're they're hardly a first step. So much more has to be done besides just putting something on your website that says we are here. And uh, I feel like VIU is doing a good job in creating that that community atmosphere of just being aware of of the impacts of colonialism. Just in one of the uh, courses that I'm taking right now, we had a, a week of uh, talking about the ethics of digging up, you know, not necessarily ancestors in in British Columbia, but of anywhere. Person was buried with all the this ceremony and, and ritual and, and emotion that went into that burial. And then a couple thousand years later, we dig them up and it's really neat science and the whole ethics of that. And then in three, four or five weeks, we're, the whole week is, is devoted to debating the value of, of science over ancestral rights and, and all these things. And it's important discussion that I don't think you need to be in a bioarchaeology class to have that's what I really appreciate about going to school at VIU is is it's not just going through the motions. They incorporate it into the classes, into the instruction that there's a lot of reckoning that has to be done with how anthropology and archaeology has been done across the world and equipping students with the knowledge of that past, but also getting them to think critically about how to do better in the future. That sounds awesome. I applaud them for taking that on and kind of wearing it, which is really good. Will you come back and tell us about the results of your study? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm, I'm also interested to hear how your conference goes in the States, your poster presentation. So I think it'd be really great to have you back on to talk about it. As long as this first a, a podcast experience didn't terrify you. No, this is great. Oh, this is great. It's, 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 like, a, it's like many conversations we've had in, in that room that you're in but yeah, um very much the same now, now we're doing it this way <laughs> yeah totally thank you for being on the podcast obviously a huge topic that so this is just going to be part of an ongoing discussion but I really look forward to hearing the outcomes um like I said with this newer generation of archaeologists coming into CRM I'm so pumped to see what the next generation does so thanks for being on Thank you so much for having me. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.